the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Failure Society of America have all joined efforts and just released their latest guidelines on heart failure three weeks ago. If you are a clinician, a nurse, or a healthcare provider who's involved in the care of patients with heart failure, then these guidelines are for you. The full text comes in a document of 138 pages, and I will try to summarize the main points over two episodes. The first episode will be on staging, classification, clinical assessment, and diagnostic workup. The second episode will describe the basics of management. So bring in your coffee, because this episode will be rich in information and will need all your attention. Cardio Buzz is your weekly cardiology podcast. We present late-breaking research, conference proceedings, guidelines, and interviews with key opinion leaders. Cardio Buzz is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. The first part is on staging, classification, and ejection fraction. You know that back in 2006, the American College of Cardiology decided to stage heart failure as we stage cancer in stages from A to D where A is someone who's at risk of heart failure, like a hypertensive or a diabetic patient or someone with coronary disease. Stage B is someone who had injured myocardium, but he doesn't have symptoms of heart failure. Stage C is symptomatic heart failure, and stage D is advanced heart failure. This staging system alerted us to the need for risk factor control to avoid the development of clinical heart failure, but it also increased the number of patients who were classified as heart failure. Any hypertensive patient is at risk, so he goes into the heart failure stage A. The new guidelines propose the same stages, but with some modifications. They renamed class B as pre-heart failure, so it's not heart failure, it's pre-heart failure, and this is an important change. And they had many details on the medical treatment that works for patients with asymptomatic heart failure to slow the development of symptomatic heart failure. They also added a new terminology on trajectory of heart failure, and this is only for stage C. For symptomatic patients, there are four possibilities, either de novo heart failure, or worsening heart failure, or persistent heart failure, or resolution of heart failure. For those heart failure patients whose trajectory is towards improvement, they are named as a remission of heart failure and see how the cancer terminology still shows up in the guidelines. The New York Heart Association classification remains the same. But for the ejection fraction, there are some modifications. We know that the ejection fraction is one of the decisive phenotypes in heart failure. The cutoffs for ejection fraction were detailed and revised. And we now have four phenotypes based on the ejection fraction. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, HEF-REF, this is when the ejection fraction is 40 or less. HEF-PEF is the preserved ejection fraction when the ejection fraction is 50 or more. Heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, HEF-M-REF, when the ejection fraction is between 41 and 49. If a patient improves from below 40 to more than 40 or more than 50, then the phenotype is labeled as heart failure with improved ejection fraction, HEF-MF. And this is a new label. Rather than calling them heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction.
The second part on diagnosis of heart failure. There is a revised algorithm for diagnosis of heart failure that starts by clinical suspicion based on symptoms, signs, risk factors, followed either by echo or natriuretic peptides. The cutoff for elevated N-terminal pro-BNP is 125 and for pro-BNP is 35. There's also a long list of potential causes for pro-BNP and N-terminal pro-BNP elevation. This is pertinent to the emergency medicine and family medicine practice because not all pro-BNP elevations are cardiac. Patients may be mislabeled as cardiac, whereas in fact the BNP elevation can be due to non-cardiac causes like aging, renal failure, sepsis, pneumonia, sleep apnea, or even burns. These peptides are not only useful for diagnosis of heart failure, but they are also useful for risk stratification. This gets class 1A. The higher the pro-BNP, the higher the risk. They are useful for stratifying patients before they are being discharged from the hospital. This is class 2A because it serves as a baseline for following these patients in the long term. They also a new recommendation which is screening by pro-BNP in patients at risk for heart failure. This gets a class 2A and this is based on the STOP-HF trial that showed that when we screen patients who are at risk for heart failure with pro-BNP, then the outcome improves compared to standard of care. Echocardiography, being versatile, cheap, and almost risk-free, is a cornerstone in assessing systolic functions, diastolic functions, the structure of the ventricles, and the atria. It's recommended to re-evaluate the ejection fraction 40 days after the myocardial infarction, 90 days after revascularization, and 90 days after medical therapy to determine if the ejection fraction improved or not, the trajectory of heart failure, and to decide if the patient is candidate for a defibrillator or a CRT device. Also, repeat surveillance of LV function is appropriate in patients who are exposed to chemotherapy for cancer because these agents can damage the myocardium. So repeat surveillance of LV function is appropriate in these patients. Cardiac MRI gets class 2A. It's helpful because we can see patterns in MRI of late gadolinium enhancement that can suggest specific etiologies like infiltrative and myocarditis, sarcoidosis, Fabry disease, Chagat disease, non-compaction, iron overload, and amyloidosis. These allow for measurement of the interstitial space and the extracellular volume function. They also provide diagnostic and prognostic information. Data from registries showed that cardiac MRI findings frequently impact the patient care management and they provide diagnostic information with suspected myocarditis and cardiomyopathy. However, doing routine screening with MRI in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy did not yield more specific heart failure causes than a selective strategy after the echo and the clinical findings. There is a very nice section on the genetics of heart failure. Genetic variants have been implicated in 30 to 40% of patients with dilated cardiomyopathy and a positive family history. But also, genetic variants have been implicated in 10 to 30% of patients without family history of heart failure. So when to, suspe when to suspect genetic forms of cardiomyopathy? There's a nice table for that. Some features like marked hypertrophy on echo 
RV thinning, long QT, Brugada ECG features, early onset of conduction system disease or atrial fibrillation, skeletal myopathy, neuropathy, dysmorphic features, mental retardation. All of these features should start screening for genetic causes of heart failure. When these features are there, first-degree family members should be screened and the patient should be referred for genetic testing, and this is class 2A. Is it important to identify genetic causes? The answer is definitely yes. Some pathologic variants are associated with increased risk of sudden death and may trigger consideration of primary prevention defibrillator even in patients with an ejection fraction more than 35 or before three months of guideline-directed therapy. Dysmosomal cardiac diseases, they carry the additional implication to avoid strenuous exercise, like in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Genetic confirmation of Fabry cardiomyopathy is an indication for enzyme replacement therapy, which is currently approved for this uncommon cardiomyopathy. Part 3 Additional Clinical Evaluations for Heart Failure In addition to history, physical examination, probing P, echo, maybe MRI, the guidelines stress the importance of validated heart failure risk scores, and these risk scores help to predict the in-hospital mortality and the long-term mortality, and using these scores gets class 2A in the guidelines. The guidelines have links to these calculators and risk scores like the Seattle Heart Failure Risk Scores, the Magic Heart Failure Risk Score, and the AHA Get With The Guidelines Scores. These risk scores are useful for ambulatory, hospitalized patients, and the general population. So use these risk scores. Cardiopulmonary exercise testing and 6-minute walk test, they get class 2A in ambulatory patients to assess the functional class. Patients with peak oxygen consumption less than 14 should be considered for transplantation or ventricular assist device. There's a whole section on wearables and remote monitoring in the guidelines. However, the guidelines were skeptical about the use of wireless monitoring of PA pressures by an implanted hemodynamic monitor, the CardioMEMS device, and it gives it only class 2B. And the guidelines state that the usefulness of this device to reduce the risk of heart failure hospitalizations and mortality is uncertain and is of uncertain cost-effective value. Section 5 is on cardiac amyloidosis, and our understanding of cardiac amyloidosis has changed drastically in the last decade. Amyloidosis is basically a deposition of extracellular protein. It's either a monoclonal immunoglobulin light chain amyloid cardiomyopathy, AL type, and this is part usually of hematologic malignancy, or a transtyretine amyloidosis, ATTR. ATTR can be caused by either pathogenic variants in the transtyretine gene, which is a familial type, or a wild-type transtyretine, which is mostly age-related. The diagnosis of transtyretine cardiomyopathy requires a high index of suspicion. Think of cardiac amyloidosis in these situations. When there is left ventricular thickening, more than 14 millimeters, with fatigue, dyspnea, or edema. 
whenever there's discordance between the thick ventricle on echo and the QRS voltage on the ECG. Think of amyloidosis when there is sparing of the apex in echocardiography longitudinal strain. Think of it in patients with HFPEF who have carpal tunnel syndrome, lumbar canal stenosis, and an autonomic or sensory neuropathy. Or whenever there's diffuse late gadolinium enhancement on cardiac MRI, or in patients with severe aortic stenosis. The guidelines provide a practical algorithm for the diagnosis and management of suspected cardiac amyloidosis. Patients should be screened first for serum and urine monoclonal light chains with serum and urine immunofixation electrophoresis. If these are positive, then the amyloid is part of the hematologic malignant condition and then should be referred for hematological care and organ biopsy. In the absence of light chain abnormality, then technetium-99 pyrophosphate scan is diagnostic of ATTR cardiomyopathy if there is increased cardiac uptake. In fact, the presence of grade 2 over 3 increased cardiac uptake in the absence of monoclonal protein in serum or urine has very high specificity and positive predictive value for ATTR cardiomyopathy. The diagnosis of ATTR cardiomyopathy is important because there are new therapeutic options. But first, genetic sequencing is is useful because sequencing of the TTR gene, the transthyretine gene, will determine if the patient has the familial pathological variant or the wild-type age-related disease. It's important because if it is the familial type, then this should trigger genetic counseling, screening the family members, and some specific therapies which are approved only for the ATTR with polyneuropathy. In patients with transthyretine cardiomyopathy and functional class 1, 2, or 3 heart failure, then there is a new therapy, which is the stabilizer therapy for transthyretine. It's called tafamidis, and it's indicated to reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. This breakthrough drug should be better given early in the disease course because it prevents amyloid deposition, but does not reverse amyloid deposition. It's an expensive therapy, it remains of low economic value, and the cost needs to be reduced by approximately 80% to bring its cost effectiveness to be an intermediate value. Also, the benefit has not been observed in patients with functional class 4, or patients with severe aortic stenosis, or patients with impaired renal function. So this therapy needs to be used selectively and as early as possible. That was all for the diagnosis, the classification, the risk stratification, when to suspect amyloidosis, when to order cardiac MRI. The coming episode, we will be focusing on medical and non-medical therapies for heart failure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cardio Buzz. Please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. You will get alerts to coming episodes and you can listen to the previous ones. You can review the show and write your comments. Stay tuned for the next episode which will review the latest American Heart Association guidelines on heart failure. Enjoy your weekend and see you next Saturday.